Welcome to the Putting Couch presented by Seymour Putter Company and the tour team. This is Jim. I'm here with Ted Galena, Cody Hale, and uh, this is our sixth episode, and this is another special episode. So um, hopefully you've had a chance to listen to episode five, which is a special presentation and insights on the U.S. Open in 1999. Payne Stewart, uh, as told by Mike Hicks, just a fascinating tale that we heard, and the other side of that story, okay, is, is that, and this is going to be a little bit of a tease for, for some of you, but at the very end of that podcast, okay, there's the greatest heist in the history of North Carolina. There's a police officer. There's a guy in blue jeans and a t-shirt buying a 12-pack of beer who happened to have just within the last two hours won the greatest U.S. Open in history named Payne Stewart. And there's Mike Hicks. And then there's the guy driving the getaway car which is Pat O'Brien, and Pat O'Brien <laughs> is our guest today. And Pat also had a very, very close relationship with Payne Stewart. Pat has gone on to be, we believe, the preeminent putting instructor in the world. And a lot of it is based on his relationship with Payne Stewart. But this is the 20-year anniversary of the U.S. Open in 1999, the greatest U.S. Open in history by most accounts. And Pat, we, we couldn't help but chuckle when we tried to picture you in the getaway car. So let's start there and we'll work backwards. What happened after that U.S. Open? <laughs> well, so that's one of the two most surreal weeks of my life. And you guys could probably guess the other one, which we can discuss another time. But um, I, so I'll take you to the end of the round. Um, I, I watched the final putt on the video scoreboard that was set up for the driving range because there were too many people i couldn't get i wow. couldn't get there it was uh it was just an incredible scene so caught up with hicksie waited for Payne to do all his interviews and then we're headed back to hicksie's house in mebbin north carolina to um do an outing the next day Payne was going to do an outing with with uh, sutton and zinger and one other guy i can't remember but anyway um I, I had been staying with Mike all week, so I was the driver of the van, the getaway van. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the most vivid memories besides that, that, that liquor store was looking in the rearview mirror. Just, I, I'd look, I just would look back there constantly and see this guy with the biggest grin on his face <laughs> with this huge U.S. Open trophy. <laughs> I mean, he's talking to the president of the United States. He's talking to all his friends. It was just, it was absolutely incredible that I got to be a part of that. And then, you know, we go to Mike's house and there's a, like a block party uh, spontaneously that's been set up. And, and so we spent the whole night drinking whatever from that trophy. And we all certainly paid for it the next day, but it was well worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, it just seems unbelievable to me that this day and age, I mean, one of the most coveted championships in all of sports and you think about the champions and you think about private exclusive get-togethers family only uh, private planes literally people being untouchable at that level of greatness and you're driving down the highway in a van with Payne Stewart and the U.S. Open trophy going to stay at his caddy's house the night of winning the U.S. Open I mean how can that be just incredible yeah it's just I mean <laughs> And it, it really, it led me to my current career, too. Like, just seeing what was possible with 
that putter, I mean, that, that Seymour putter was the difference maker that week. He, he made so many putts. We all know the story. Um, but just watching him that whole year, how he went from being a very mediocre putter to a very good putter, literally overnight. And that, and that shaped my career, basically. And, and that is just unbelievable. We want to get to that. So, so, so Payne, I mean, he, that wasn't a commitment he was going to break. He, I mean, he, he said at the beginning of the week to Mike Hicks, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm coming. I'll stay at your house on Sunday night. I guess they never factored in, hey, what would happen if you won the U.S. Open? Or is that just, it's just a different era? I mean, to go have a party at, in a small town in North Carolina the night of winning the U.S. Open. I mean, that, that was a commitment. I guess that's the way Payne, that's the way he operated, I guess. That's the way he operated, and I, Mike touched on it too. Um, that you know maybe the old Payne Stewart uh, five years ago would not have kept that commitment. He would have just you know he would have blown it off. But he was a different person then. He was so much more at peace and and um, just able to roll with anything and and really give back. And he knew how much that meant to Mike to have that outing and how much money they were going to raise. And and so there there was never even a thought of breaking that commitment. So just in case somebody hasn't listened to the other podcast first, so you had a bit of a police escort, and then at what point did you guys, were you directed to pull over into a convenience store? I, certainly you must remember that. I, <laughs> I think we needed gas. I <laughs> wanted some beer. Uh, well deserved. So uh, I don't know how we signaled Bobby <laughs> the highway patrol. Um, but he was leading us through the country, just country roads of North Carolina. It was about a you know, it was a 90 minute drive, but it probably took, you know, 70 minutes because we had police lights flashing and we were going as fast as we could. And so we had to stop to probably use the restroom, buy some beer and get some gas. So Bobby, actually, he put the flashers on. Why not? He's got the U.S. Open champion behind him. I mean, I guess that's <laughs> yeah. the presidential. Get out of right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just added to the surreal, the surrealness <laughs> of the, the whole experience. I, that's just that, that that's just one of the great stories so tell us a little bit about that Sunday I mean and you can even go earlier in the week if you want but just tell us about that week um, through your eyes Pat because I mean you you've spent your whole life in golf and as you said you've built a career off of that in some ways off of that moment but that being you know just an, an unbelievable week and, and and the US Open had more drama I think than they could ever have wanted but you were there from the beginning tell us about your memory of that week and how it unfolded so I'll go back a little bit to the to the year before at Olympic Club um, I had met Mike Hicks well I had met Payne first in 1987 and then I had met Mike uh, later that year and, and probably no it was in 1988 that's when I first met him. He had started working for Payne a little bit before then. And he and I just hit it off and we became great friends. And uh, so in 98, he stayed at my house and, you know, the Olympic club was my home course. That's where I grew up. So, you know, my friends essentially are leaving this U S open and it, it wasn't a sure thing, but it sure looked good for a long time. And then to lose it uh, like he did, um, it was just absolutely heartbreaking. And I remember at, in the parking lot afterwards, Payne comes out and he's got the second place medal and he shows it to me and goes, this in a box of grapes, will give you the squirts. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, was, we were all just crestfallen and heartbroken. And so fast forward to the next year, I, I went out to, I think I got there Sunday night. I had been in New York 
previously. Flew to Hixie's house, stayed there, drove with him every day, back and forth uh, to the U.S. Open. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't talk much about it. He obviously was locked in all week, and, and Mike knew that, and, and I could see it. And but we didn't really talk about it. we we'd saw what happened last year and and probably didn't want to jinx anything but it was just a sense of calm and peace the whole week and then to Sunday same thing pain was different than he just had this serenity about him that was uh, palpable and so getting to watch every shot that he hit that week was super cool and and getting to talk to mike a little bit about it afterwards but just just the presence he had uh i've never seen somebody so calm it made quite an impression upon me so i didn't know that if he was going to win or not but i certainly knew that he wasn't going to beat himself that week it, it was in retrospect obviously we know pain won but gosh to have to be there in the moment you had Tiger Woods a shot off at times, right? You had Vijay Singh, David Duvall, Phil Mickelson face-to-face. So it was not a foregone conclusion, as well as he was playing, uh, that he was going to win this U.S. Open. And Mike talked about the battle going back and forth. And then some of those big putts that he made, just he only had 24 putts. So uh, most of the putts were were pretty big putts. And, um, you know, the, the distance uh, in, in feet of putts made was, you know, was off the charts. But... You know, you, you had been studying his putting, and, you know, in fact, we, we heard one story that maybe at the end of the day Saturday, his wife Tracy had said something to him about, hey, maybe you're moving your head just a touch, just like trying to peek down and see if the putt's going to go in before, um, you know, before, uh, you know, you should. And we've heard that he went out and practiced that a little bit on Saturday. And then, you know, Sunday, my goodness, I mean, he made everything. Do you know anything about that story? I remember hearing that too. Uh, he he said to Tracy afterwards, I, I kept my head down, lovey. And that was her instructions to him. And that was certainly a big key that day. And then the yeah. other key he always had was he he had a little bit of a cup in his left wrist when he set up. And if he maintained that cup, then the stroke was good. So I think he had a couple simple keys like that. And, and obviously that putter the Seymour put him into a good setup every time. So, uh, yeah, he did make everything that day and, um, he made everything pretty much all year. Uh, he, you know, it was, it was a startling transformation and it was just, you know, culminated that week. Pat, what was, uh, you know, give us a little insight. I know, you know, at that time you were, you know, starting your career and you said it launched what, Give us a little insight to what your role was that week in terms of, were you there for support of a friend? Were you guys working on anything? I mean, you know, what, what were you doing day to day that week? I was there as a fan only. I was there to have a, a front row seat to the greatest U.S. Open ever. And, and, um, and I certainly just absorbed as much as I could. Um, I, it's like I said, the, the thing that impressed me the most was just the the sense of calm that he had and uh just how locked in locked in he was all week but yeah i was nothing more than a fan my, my relationship with pain was you know i met him when i was a senior in high school and um i was just as starstruck as could be i, I got to spend some time with his family early on his his mother um and tracy and and the 
and the kid actually was only Chelsea at that time. And and then so through the years, I I, I just I got to ask him questions and learn from him and, and see what he did and some of the stuff, the short game stuff I, I teach today and, and obviously the putting, that was that was the that was it. I was a good putter growing up, but I never understood why and but I and I had an alignment problem and then once Payne started using the Seymour putter, that taught me about alignment and that to me was sort of the final piece of the puzzle and and so it fit right in with with what I wanted to do. So I, I got to see him use it and see what it did for him. And then after he passed away, um, I met the inventor of the Seymour putter through Mike Hicks. They were going to uh, have a business arrangement. And so Mike took me to dinner because uh, they were based out in the Bay Area where I lived. So I met him. I told him what I thought about the putter. And then he said, well, I like what you're talking about. You want a job? <laughs> and i said sure i was um i was sort of a failed golfer i i'd never turned professional i just wasn't a good enough ball striker and so i was 30 years old and looking for something to do and and he stuck me out on on the pro tours and he you know my job was to get people to use the putter and that opened up an avenue to well okay here's here's how you set up with this putter and here's how you your alignment is and your ball position and okay grip or stroke and so it, it all just evolved from there from that relationship pob um hicksy talked about you know pain's putting woes and how they were consistent at times and then inconsistent at times and he knew what he was doing he didn't know what he was doing all you know throughout his career and then even if he had used that that Seymour putter throughout his career, he probably had, you know, many more wins. When you would see him before and then what you saw after, what was was there a, a, a something that you saw in his putting stroke or did Payne ever say anything to you that this is what I kept on doing wrong and so forth? What can you give us any insight in, into that area of his in, in his putting? So, again, as a fan, um, when when the when he first put the putter in play at the AT&T uh, in 1999, I was there too. I I was I lived in the Bay Area, so I attended that tournament too. I was actually sitting in the pro shop um, at Pebble Beach uh, with Payne and David Duvall uh, when they called the tournament. That they, they didn't get to play on Sunday because of the weather. And Payne, so Payne's lead held up. And, and so that was kind of cool. I just, you know, Duvall stood up and shook his hand and, and off they went and Payne was a winner. But Payne was a, um, he was a right aimer. He would aim right and, and pull the ball to make it go in. And uh, Arnie Cunningham showed him this putter and he put it into practice. And, and Arnie explained the alignment piece and hide the red dot. And, and suddenly his alignment got better. And he had a system. He had a way to set up. He would put the putter, you know, right in the center of his body, and the ball was a little forward of that. And he did it every single time. So once he put that into play, he would always go back to that setup, and that was it. And I remember watching him in the past. I've watched him play several tournaments throughout the years, and he'd always be off to the side of the green, just fiddling around with his putting stroke, trying to find some sort of feel. I think Mike touched on it. You know, sometimes his hands would be high, sometimes they'd be low. His ball position would change. So many variables would change. And, and the Seymour took all those variables away. And, and he got better right away, and he maintained that uh, all the way until he passed away. 
looking back, and, and this is the putting couch presented by the Seymour Putter Company, our, our tour team. And actually, right now we're talking to Pat O'Brien, who is sort of our tour team emeritus. He, Pat O'Brien uh, is a guy that we first heard about when, <laughs> when we were um, acquiring the Seymour Putter Company. And Zach Johnson told me that um, I... You know, I was doing some research into this brand and this company, and Zach said, well, you ought to talk to Pat O'Brien because Pat's sort of at the center of the whole universe of Seymour. At the time, Zach was raving about what Pat O'Brien had brought to him, and this was a young Zach Johnson prior to winning the Masters, and uh, Zach was giving a lot of accolades to, to Pat, and, uh, and Vaughn Taylor was as well, and they said, you know, Pat, they were aware of the fact that Pat had sort of brought you know, you, you talked about the cupped left wrist and the consistent setup and, you know, the peace of mind that came with that and, and brought it forward to, to Zach Johnson and Vaughn Taylor and, you know, sort of the rest is history in terms of Pat's career, which we'll get back to. But your your credentials, Pat, you know, could not have been raved about anymore by, by Zach and Vaughn at the time. And, you know, it really goes back to, as you said, yeah, you were a fan, but you were a very observant fan and you were, you were watching what how Payne had transformed his playing uh, career with this putter. Ha, going to a U.S. Open, okay, we heard Mike talk a little bit about spending a couple of days out there just shipping and putting. I mean, how does one get prepared to putt great on a golf course heading into the week? I mean, what, what is it that the great players in, in this particular case, what was it that Payne would have done early in that week to get to where he could make big putt after big putt? Well, you have to learn the greens, obviously, the speed of the greens, um, the, the the breaks, where you want to leave the ball, where you don't want to leave the ball, and um, just, you know, putting and observing, basically. You, you roll some putts and you watch what they do, and it all gets uh, calibrated internally. Uh, and so when the competition rolls around, I mean, you've done your homework, you're dialed in, now it all becomes about just putting to the picture basically see it feel it and let it go so that was the prep work and, and pain as we all know had just an extraordinary short game around the greens so that was a huge advantage that week at, at pinehurst i remember uh, duvall who was number one in the world i believe at the time um that that was clearly evident that he did not have the imagination around the greens he was a very just a very basic chipper i remember that uh, explicitly when they played together that, that Payne outclassed him around the greens and then on the greens, obviously, too. So that was the prep work, basically. Just just get the feel for the speed and the breaks and, and where you want to leave the ball and where you don't. And when a guy like that gets into the zone that he was in on Sunday, I mean, what's actually happening? I mean, is it is it is it a mindless zone? Is it is it just letting, you know, preparation take over? Is there, you know, how does... How can one putt so well under such pressure? Well, you know, I, I believe that the guy who's the most calm or the girl who's the most calm is the one that is going to win on Sunday. And, you know, maybe somebody else gets a, a good break at the right time and, and they win. But I don't think you can win a golf tournament unless you're calm. And and that's what Payne had going for him. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an energy at an event, whether it be your club championship or whether it be the U.S. Open or the Masters, and um, there's an energy from the participants, and there's an energy from the spectators, and and it's it's palpable. You can feel it, and so that's going to kick the adrenaline in. And and the people that play at the highest level on the Sundays of their tournaments are the ones that that know how to deal with that and and breathe through it and just calm down. 
and and Payne just had a piece about him in life in general at that time that he really hadn't had um, a couple years before, and uh, and that to me was just that's the advantage. Pat, is that something that you as an instructor can teach your students or? Um, do you make them aware of that, uh, during the round, um, you know, a junior golfer calls you and says, I'm going in the final round. What do I need to expect or what should I expect? Do you try to relay that to them or is it just something that, you know, is just the, the person's born with and either they get it or they don't get it? That's a good question. I think you can, I think it's a learned behavior. Um, and I think that, that a coach can prep you for that to some extent, but I think you also have to learn it through experience. Um, you're going to feel that energy. It's going to overwhelm you probably at first, and maybe you recover that day, or maybe you recover the next time, or maybe it takes you 10 times. Who knows? But what I, what I counsel players um, on is to you know, eat breakfast slower that day, drive to the golf course slower that day, walk slower, talk slower, just do everything before you tee off as slowly as you can to combat that intense energy that's coming your way. And then obviously breathing uh, and, and self-talk are super important too. So maybe it comes more um, instinctively to some people, but I think it's really a learned behavior and you got to go through the fire a couple times to really understand it. Well, it's U.S. Open Week. I mean, you're you didn't grow up at Pebble Beach. You grew up at the Olympic Club, but you know Pebble Beach was right down the road. Um, what are what are some of the things that you uh, you know would be looking for you know at a U.S. Open at Pebble Beach right now, given the state of the game and the USGA and what have you in terms of you know preparation at that golf course this week? You know, those greens are um, well, they're pro-ana as we know, and so they can get a little bumpy in the afternoons, which that's a that's a different animal. You can't take that personally. You you might have a ball that that really bounces offline if when you hit a good putt, and that it just happens. It's kind of the nature of the beast with those greens. But those greens are 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 very very small, and um, I played back there out there in December. Uh, and, and the rough was already, the fairways are all, already a lot more narrow than they usually are. And so the rough was, was up and it's up even more now, but it, it was super windy that day. And it really uh, impressed upon me how small those greens actually are. So I don't know that wind's going to be a factor this week, but, but your ball striking obviously has to be on. Those greens are going to be firm and fast and uh, a little bit bumpy. So, Again, the conditions are the same for everybody. It's just how you deal with them. And, and, you know, do you let it rattle you or do you just go about your business? And, and I guess being below the hole in, in all cases is better than being above the hole. And when it comes to Pyoanna and some sort of green that's going to grab your ball, when you're hitting uphill, I guess you're hitting it a little bit more firm so you can have a better chance of sort of overcoming the, the nuances in the greens. That's, yeah, the, when you get those dicey, you know, downhill left to riders from three, four, five feet, and they're bumpy at the same time. Um, yeah, that's really going to test you. And so, uh, I would, I would uh, advise people in those situations to take an extra deep breath, even when you're over the ball, just to exhale and let yourself sink into the ground and calm your nerves and 
and then make the stroke. And that's that's all you can do. If it goes in, great. If it doesn't, great. But your job is to have a really solid routine and and um, have a very free stroke. I know. I know. Mike Hicks said that one of the keys to to paying success that week, and and obviously one of the it was related to great putting is is that he said he charted every single shot that he could could make and not make at that golf course. And he said, I think Mike said 71 out of 72 shots, he left himself, uh, if he did leave himself in it with a miss, it was on the proper side. And he stayed away from the areas that he had sort of X'd out as areas where you just cannot get up and down from. And uh, is that something that golfers should know about their own home course? I mean, is that, you know, I, I thought that was a lot of analysis, but in thinking about it, I mean, we all play at a regular golf course, I guess, is that something that we really should all take time to think about where on our golf course we, we just can't hit it and, and actively think about those spots? First of all, that's an incredible um, stat that he played, you know, one time out of 72 holes, he hit it where he shouldn't have. Um, that's elite ball striking. So I think, I think yeah, we can plan for that around our, our home courses. We can at least have an idea of where we don't want to go, but you know, you also have, have to have a exemplary ball control. And so sometimes the best laid plans go awry when you're not hitting the ball as well as you should. But yes, you can certainly uh, at least be mindful of that and your chances will go up as far as where you want to miss and, and not miss. Very cool. Since uh, obviously the U.S. opens up back at Pebble and that's where Payne first picked up, you know, obviously to see more new putter that week. What do you, I mean, you know, and a lot of us didn't really get to see, I mean, we hear the stories, but didn't get to see what he was struggling with. Uh, Mike touched on it a little bit, but what, you know, what are some of the things that you see with professional golfers that relate to amateur golfers of all level that, you know, that they can work on to get better? You know, is there something that you see that both of them ask questions about, you know, is it set up? Is it aimed that, um, that not only uh, help a professional golfer, but could also help a an amateur golfer that you know may play once or twice a month, or you know once or twice a week. Yeah, good question, Cody. It's um, it comes down to eliminating variables, um, changing your ball position, um, knowing where you're aiming. That's a huge one, uh, both consciously and subconsciously. Uh, it's it, my job, whether it be an, an amateur or a tour pro, is to, when they're over the ball, is to have them be as calm as possible. And, and that comes from not switching stuff around and, and knowing where you're aiming and feeling good about your line and your read and all that stuff. And, and when that's present, you can allow the putter to swing the way it's weighted. It's, it's going to get out of the ground, it's going to swing up, and it's going to fall down, and you really don't have much to do. Um, the, the stroke, to me, is a confirmation of all that. If, if you're in a good setup consistently and you know where you're aiming, you know that the read is correct, then your stroke is, is going to flow. But if something's bothering you, if you're not sure where you're aiming, you're not sure about the read, uh, is this ball position correct, it, it, you know, is my face shut, it could be any one of a dozen things, then the stroke is going to be a confirmation as well. It's going to be a little bit ragged. It's going to not get out of the ground. There's going to be some tension, and then there'll be some force on the way through. And you see that with amateurs. You see that with the highest level golfers too. Um, guys, you know, guys could be putting well 
from Thursday through Saturday, and then you throw a little bit of pressure in and, and strokes change. Well, strokes don't necessarily change at that level, but, uh, you know, mentally something's gone wrong. Yeah, you see a lot of players, I think, they're, they're working great. Everything's going well Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then all of a sudden Sunday comes around and all of a sudden they just take a nosedive. And either A, they haven't been there before, or B, it's just, you know, the stroke just sort of just lost and, and they, can't, they can't get into the groove like they were earlier in the week. And you start thinking about it probably, right? The more you think about it, <laughs> the, more you, uh, the more you probably get away from it. Yeah, vicious cycle for sure. Tension kills, you know, kills a good good putting stroke, kills a good golf swing, and and so managing that and, and figuring out why you're tense, uh, that's the first step in eliminating it. So it sounds like becoming a great putter, Pat, is not something you can just do in five minutes. Is that uh, is that is that fair? I mean, it sounds to me like you know it's it is forty percent of the game, and uh, and great putting like anything else. Um, it, it takes, it's a process, uh, it, it, and in your case, I mean, people can come down to Lakewood and work with you down at Dallas where you're the director of instruction and the transformation of a putting stroke. I mean, we even heard from Mike Hicks that even with Payne Stewart, who is a, you know, professional at the highest level that he went out and he played several practice rounds and then he went back out and putted for hours with the Seymour putter and, even then, I would assume the transfer, he, while he did win that week, I would assume that the transformation continued to take time after that. Tell us about uh, transforming a putting stroke and then working that into where it can actually help your game. So I think you can transform a putting stroke really, really quickly uh, just by fixing your setup. You know, get in a neutral setup, let the putter swing the way it's weighted. I, I think that can change almost immediately. What, what takes a little bit longer is your self-image as a putter. You know, if you've never been a good putter, if you're used to missing your three-footers and you're used to three-putting from 30 feet, then, you know, the, the, first, thing, the first thing is going to change is your stroke, obviously, and, and your setup's going to be better, and your contact's going to be better. But then it's incumbent upon you to change your self-image as a putter. And, and um, that's where the work comes in, you know, doing the right things and seeing the ball go in from three feet or four feet and, and telling yourself, well, hey, it's, it's like me to putt like this. I'm a good putter now, uh, as opposed to expecting to miss everything no matter what you do. That, that's, that's the piece, I believe, that, that takes some time, and, and it's a discipline just like it is when you learn how to, you know, execute a new swing or, a, you know, change your putting stroke or chipping or whatever. It's, it's a self-image piece that, that probably takes the most work. And Pat, that's why we call this the putting couch. We're laying on the couch right now, <laughs> and we're listening to you. And you know, the belief is is uh, is, is an important part of this. So, wow, and this has been a great chat, Pat. And uh, we want to have you back a lot, and we want to talk about um, you know more of your teaching and 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 more of the way that you're helping junior golfers and collegiate players and and really anybody enjoy the game more through great putting. Um, I think this has been a fantastic uh, conversation and I know um, it's been, it's been about 30 minutes and, and probably uh, you need to get back on the, on the teaching tee, but um, we really enjoy it. This is the putting couch and uh, we're going to talk all things putting. And today we heard from Pat O'Brien, who was right there with Payne Stewart when he won the U S open in 1999 and somehow was able to pull him away from the networks and the magazines and his family, not pull him away. But at some point, Payne said goodbye to everyone else and jumped in a car with Pat O'Brien, Mike Hicks, the U.S. Open trophy, 
and a state trooper from North Carolina and, and, and headed for a party. And uh, wow, just incredible. So um, what, what, what did, just going out, I mean, what, did, did you guys listen to music? Did you guys, I mean, was, was, did Payne want to talk about it? I mean, what, what happened on that car ride? He was on the phone a lot talking to various people. Um, I believe that the president at the time uh, was one of the conversations. So I don't, I don't remember much about music or not. I just remember think, like almost pinching myself. Like, seriously, I'm driving. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> all the heartbreak we had the year before. That yeah. That much sweeter too. And we have President Clinton on speakerphone. <laughs> right. right. Insane. Truly oh. insane. Oh. Well, thanks for sharing these stories. I, we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Always good to talk to you. Okay. Fantastic. See you, POB. Thanks, All Pat. Right. We appreciate you joining us. If you haven't subscribed to the show, make sure you do wherever you're listening. Be sure to leave a rating and review because that's how we get the Putting Couch podcast content in front of more people. Also, take a screenshot and share it on social media and tag us at Seymour Putters or hashtag Team Seymour.